The world around us is changing faster than ever before. From automation, artificial intelligence, big data, geolocation, to every aspect of how we work and live. This includes data. Welcome to Data Gurus Podcast. Our mission is to bring you a real-life perspective on what's happening in the industry and how successful companies and individuals in this niche navigate through the sea of change. Encouraging you to be bold, be brave, and be fearless. Let's navigate the data ecosystem together. Welcome to the Data Gurus Podcast. Welcome to another episode of Data Gurus. This is Seema Vasu, your host. And today I'm joined by Adriana Waterston, who's Chief Revenue Officer and Insight and Strategy Lead at Horowitz Research. Welcome, Adriana. Thank you so much, Seema. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Adriana, I had never heard of Horowitz Research until recently. Mm -hmm. And you guys specialize in a very important topic that society is kind of really focused on over recent years, and that's multicultural research. Tell Mm -hmm. us a little bit about how this focus came about for you. Right. So Horowitz actually has, you know, its roots. The roots of the company are not in multicultural work. The roots of our company back in the day when our, my boss, Howard Horowitz started the company in the mid eighties, the company was really focused on helping the nascent cable industry. And what was happening in that time was that in the early 80s, people started figuring out that, hey, there's a market for a lot of content out there. We've got this cable technology that was around for already a few decades now, but it was really mostly about getting broadcast signals to rural areas that broadcast signals wouldn't reach. But here's this heavy technology with, you know, it's great technology that can carry so much content through those pipes And there was a market, there was a need or an opportunity to deliver more content to more people. So I'd speak about that because the very first question that Howard's company, you know, addressed for the industry was, you know, who would pay for television when television was free? Right. And that required a segmentation of all of these different kinds of people, rural, urban, suburban, you know, across the country in all different markets. And from those early days, one thing that became very obvious was that multicultural people, particularly Black and Latinx, at the time we called it Hispanic, people were among the hungriest for content, the most willing to pay for entertainment services, watch the most television, were the most excited to have cable in their neighborhoods, all this kind of stuff. And yet in those years, a lot of the cable companies redlined Black and Hispanic neighborhoods. We talk about redlining, you know, multicultural communities, you know, when it comes to banking, for example, and housing, you know, and mortgages and things. But it was redlined for a lot of stuff, including technology, which, by the way, the remnants of that still exist today, which is why even though we think the digital divide is over, the fact of the matter is in many, you know, urban multicultural, you know, centers, the technology, even broadband is not as good as it is in other markets, right? So this is still an issue we're dealing with today. But we saw that and I say we as a company, I wasn't at the company then, I was still in high school in my right. 80s. But you know, that was something that became very evident early on. And so in addition to the sort of general market work that the company was doing to, you know, help this industry grow and evolve, 
Uh, we also became very big advocates for looking at multicultural audiences, urban markets, you know, multicultural consumers, international audiences, and non-English speaking or foreign language dominant communities, and so on and so forth. I joined the company in 2001. And it was a very fortuitous time for me to join the company because there was a confluence of circumstances. One is that I happen to be Latina. I'm born and raised in San Juan, Puerto Rico, fully bilingual, bicultural. And I came into the company really on the marketing side. I wasn't actually a researcher at the time. And the other thing that happened around this time was Census 2000 came out. So by the time I joined the company in 2001, people were starting to have conversations about multicultural in a way that wasn't happening before Census. Census 2000. Census 2000 was really the first time a lot of people started realizing that, hey, you know, we are going to become a multicultural majority country eventually. And it's not that far away. And so, you know, I come into the company, I'm Latina, I understand my Hispanic market, and I understand other multicultural audiences, and started really getting you know, digging into all of this data that we had been collecting over the years about uh, multicultural audiences in the market for television and technology and all this kind of stuff and, and really became passionate about it. And that became my personal sort of area of expertise. And then of course, you know, as the company continued to evolve and this conversation around multicultural became, you know, every year it became more and more important and relevant it really became what we were known for. So even though we still do a lot of work in the general market space or total market space or whatever you want to call it, we're really known for our thought leadership and our advocacy when it comes to multicultural communities and audiences. You know, we do a lot of work in cultural insights and we do this kind of work, not just for companies that are in the media and telecommunications space, but for companies across a wide array of industry verticals. And let's just step back a minute, because I think people have such different definitions of words that describe culture. But give me a perspective of how you define multicultural. Right. So it could be many things. It is everything. You know, we are all multicultural people. We obviously, you know, in the world of marketing, multicultural is code word for doing research or marketing to people of non-white you know, races and people that are not necessarily from 100% American, you know, cultures, right? So so the the multicultural word, you know, means basically that, you know, research among or marketing around uh, Black communities, you know, Hispanic communities, Asian communities, etc. In our definition, of course, culture is very broad, right? So it's not just about race and ethnicity. It's about identity. So we do a lot of LGBTQIA work. We do a lot of work around people that have other kinds of community affinities and cultural affinities. I would argue, that each of us are members of many, many different or participants in many, many different cultures that define us or that influence us beyond just our race, our ethnicity, our cultural backgrounds, or our gender. And what's your thesis or perspective on how many different kind of places we participate as individuals in terms of communities? If you are, you know, I would argue everybody is multicultural, exactly what you said, depending on you know, and not depending on your skin color, your race or your or your ethnicity, but there's communities and groups that we align to. And do you have a sense of from research, how many groups are people part of that kind of give us this multicultural flavor? So if you talk to anthropologists, like okay. my sister, who's an anthropologist and also is one of the principals at Horowitz Research, anthropologists will tell you that the definition of culture 
is really about the meaning or the meanings that people attach to uh, traditions, to objects, to experiences, to places, you know, and religious, you know, activities and things like that. So when you think about culture, not as something that is sort of a stagnant thing that fits in a box, right? but rather about those meanings that we attach to it and the feelings that we get because of our participation in in those experiences, then you have a very different sense of what culture is. And you can understand that it's a very fluid and very personal and ever-changing thing, right? Or concept. And so when you ask the question, you know, how many different kinds of cultures do we each participate in? You know, we have to think about all of our experiences of the world. And, you know, for me personally, I am definitely multicultural, as we all are, right? Right. But I, I, first and foremost, I'm, my identity is very wrapped up in my sense of being Puerto Rican and having been born and raised there, even though, by the way, you know, my parents were not necessarily Puerto Rican. I was born and raised there. And have that connection to that culture, that identity that is mine, that no one can take away from me. But I also participate in other cultures and communities because the fact that my parents were, my father was an immigrant to Puerto Mm Rico. Right. You know what I mean? And he happened to be a Polish Jewish immigrant from Poland to Cuba and from Cuba to Puerto Rico. So I have all these, you know, cultural connections, you know, that come from that. And so many of us, and now I'm really just specifically talking about our cultural backgrounds, right? have those kinds of diverse connections that mean something and that all together create who we are. But then I'm involved in other sort of communities, right? That shape who I am too. I'm a single mother by choice, right? You know, that ties me to, to other people who are in those kinds of uh, familial situations. And, you know, that creates a bond with me with, you know, with other people. And so I consider that part of my multicultural experience sensibility you know is you know being a participant in kind of culture of being a single mother and and raising my kid on my own and and I um share things experience things differently in the world because of that and so I think that's another part of it and of course there's also our regional cultures that we participate in you know the way that life is lived in New York yeah. is very different than the way life is lived in other parts of the country so that's part of what makes us diverse right. too so when you think about that concept of multiculturalism as being much more broad than just about, you know, a way to sort of segment people from racial and ethnic backgrounds right. out of the total market, then then it becomes a lot more of a rich conversation. It is. I would also say it probably is, it makes a marketer's job a lot more difficult. Um, for sure. Yeah. You know, what messages resonate? What are the need states of different people and different cultures? And I know that you work with a lot of these established brands that are trying to reach different pockets of people. And what are some of the challenges that marketers are facing as as it relates to understanding multicultural, but then actually executing, creating a plan and, you know, really being able to resonate and target different groups of consumers? Wow. So that's really, we have to unpack that on a lot of levels. So absolutely, it's a challenge. I think the number one challenge is that, and I'm not going to say that this is every marketer, right? But it would be easy if we could just essentialize people into these like very neat buckets. Oh, well, these are black people and we're going to market to black people this way. We're going to talk about this thing and we're going to put this kind of music on in the background of our ads and, you know, 
we're going to use people that look like this in our ads and speak like this in our ads or whatever it is that we're creating content or whatever. And that's going to work. Or Hispanic. Oh, you know, people love to say, well, Hispanics, we know how to do this, right? We have to do it in Spanish. And we know that everybody's family oriented and religious. So this is easy. We got this. You know, that's not the reality, though. The reality is, is that, again, we're all very multifaceted. And there's a lot of diversity within each of these communities and a lot of, you know, different ways uh, that people connect, even with people outside of those communities, too. So there's the sort of silos, the ethnic and racial and whatever cultural silos. But then there's that intersectional, those intersectional experiences that people have that relates back to, again, other things, whether it's their gendered experiences of the world or whether it's their the family background or socioeconomics or where they come from in this country, where they live and, you know, all these kinds of things. So it is a little bit difficult, I think, and increasingly difficult for marketers. And especially now, because we are so, we've developed such a much more sophisticated understanding of, you know, the way that people experience racial stereotypes or, you know, just the, that kind of essentialist representation that that tends to, you know, happen and stuff like that. So our job lately has been really focused on helping marketers and content providers unlearn all the things that they thought that they were learning how to do right right to reach all of these different segments and to really think about all of us as as part of a broader community. And mm-hmm. I think the message for marketers and content providers is that all of our stories are at once unique and at once universal. Mm-hmm. And the more you understand that, internalize that, the better of a job you are going to do. You are never going to find one authentic Black experience or one authentic Black person or one authentic looking, you know, Asian household, like that you can take and it's going to resonate with everybody. You know, if you put that household or if you, whatever in your ass, right. If you're true to one person's experience and you learn how to really do that well, it's going to resonate across other groups. So for example, to simplify this matter a little bit, when we talk to people who are immigrant families, you know, for people who have who are first generation families in the United yeah. States and whatever, it doesn't matter whether you're talking to a Hispanic person, an Asian person, a black person that, you know, coming in from Africa or from right. uh, the Caribbean or whatever, there are going to be similarities in their experiences of being in the United States as a, so as a first generation so immigrant yep. that there, yes, there's going to be nuances. You know, if you are, you know, a person that comes here with very little money and not a whole lot of education, and perhaps you come from certain countries over others, then you right. might have a different experience of this than the, But there are still going to be similarities. Sure. There's still going to be things that are going to be familiar, like whatever, learning how to, you know, manage the subway system in New York City, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. you know, whatever. And like, and if you find the truth in those moments, in those unique Mm-hmm. moments, then those can become universal stories that can really appeal across a broader, you know, a much wider target right. than what you might have imagined you were looking to reach. That's a great example because I know I'm first generation immigrant here. My my parents are from India and mm-hmm. I talk to other first generation immigrants and the universal theme of the responsibility that we have 
of the sacrifices our parents made to come here and kind of instilling this concept of duty and, you know, hard work to pay it forward to the next generation. I think it's, you know, again, there's slivers of that depending on where you're coming from and what your parents' first experience was in coming here. But it's almost unspoken, like instantly connect and say, okay, I understand. Right. And then of course, there's uniqueness to each of those stories, right? Because that experience is so common. And everybody who comes from a family like yours will recognize exactly what you just talked about. And by the way, it is a truth that is very different than the narrative that we hear in this country, especially on from certain sides of the political, yes. you know, spectrum about immigrants becoming, you know, coming here and being a burden and right. wanting to, you know, mooch off the system and this would they're all criminals and whatever. It's like actually some of the hardest working people. Yeah you know, are because there is such a responsibility. And and then that second generation, your generation of wanting to, you know, you know how much your parents have sacrificed, you know, what what they went through to give you these opportunities. And it's your job to not fail them. Right. right? And that's something that I hear that over and over again. But then it's interesting because that's where then you start seeing the uniquenesses that have to do with racialized experiences in this country. Right. And nobody has you know, a great, necessarily a great experience of this, right? But everybody's got their own little thing. So when we talk to, for example, you know, Latinx folks, young people who are, are these sort of, you know, next generation first, maybe not born here, but are growing up here and whatever, this feeling of being underestimated because of having an accent, because maybe they didn't know enough English when they first got here, because they have darker skin, because they just happen to have a Hispanic last name or whatever. This sense of feeling underestimated is very powerful. But some people translate that into that's their superpower, right? They know that they're underestimated. They know they underestimate them. So they're going to it's like an opening to overachieve, right? And so it's so interesting how different people talk about that experience in very different ways. And I also think the transmission of culture beyond the first generation of immigrants, right? Like, is that transmission still as strong? And I know we're just talking about culture because there's other, other aspects to it. Or does it get diluted? And you know, are the expectations different for the next generation? Because perhaps the transmission was not as strong in terms of culture, given all the other priorities. I think that's really interesting as well in terms of how strong that connection is. So there's a couple of things that that makes me think about. The first is, is that we are in a very different place in terms of our understanding about the value of diversity and multiculturalism and multilingualism and all this stuff in the United States now than we were, you know, generations ago. So for many folks that, for example, Hispanic folks, families that came here, you know, in the sixties and the fifties, even in the seventies, the desire, and even in the eighties, the desire was to sort of pretend that we're not, you know, Latino anymore, right? right? The whole idea of assimilation, like, you know, not teaching their kids the language, not you know, participating or or outwardly sort of becoming or being, you know, being in their culture and stuff like that, because it was so difficult for people to achieve success if they stayed insular in their, in their cultures and their communities. And that's, that was true for a lot of immigrant communities, right? Not just Latinos, but today we have so much of a 
broader sense of, you know, or appreciation for diversity, whether it's, you know, and especially in urban multicultural markets, you know, where there's this tapestry, this beautiful tapestry of different foods and different languages and different people and different customs and, and all of this, that it's much easier for people to feel comfortable with with maintaining those connections to their culture. There's also some other factors that go into it too, which is com- telecommunications has changed so dramatically over oh. the past number of decades. Mm-hmm. So when it used to be that, you know, a family would, you know, come to the United States and their connection to their home country was very difficult to maintain. I mean, maybe you would go back and visit your relatives, you know, once every five, 10 years, if anything, you know, and telephone calls were expensive and there was no this, you know, of digital media and video chatting and airfare was ridiculous. You know, there was no transportation. So with the exception of some, like, you know, if you were, there was a lot of circular migration, of course, for Mexicans and, and even Caribbeans, but other communities and cultures, I mean, had a much more difficult time. And now it is so much easier to maintain those connections. I mean, physically, actual travel is easier if you have the right paperwork, if you have the right, but communications, this whole idea of being of WhatsApp and, Mm -hmm. and all of these video chatting stuff, this people talk about, and in our research all the time about how important that's been to, for example, make sure that their children maintain connections to their cousins or their right. grandparents or their whatever abroad, which then strengthens the cultural connection, strengthens the language skills, yep. you know, and all those kinds of things that are really important in terms of being able to keep those cultural traditions and things like that alive. Yeah. Right. And at the same time, though, you know, culture is ever changing, right? So the way that you know, one might like live, you know, the traditional customs and, you know, whatever religious practices or cultural practices and whatever back in one's home country is going to change and evolve as you are here, even if you have a strong connection, because now you're also participants in and part of the broader American you know, culture that you're in, right? So all of a sudden, you know, your family celebrations are not just going to include the traditional foods, but also might have some American foods thrown in or, you know, your lunchbox as a kid might be bento box with sushi and a Kit Kat bar, you know what I mean? And fascinating, which is really cool. And all of those things are ways that people, I mean, food, music, religion, religious traditions, cultural traditions, you know, those are the things, the ties that bond, you know, those are the things that keep people connected. And now that people have more access to that, it makes it more feasible for people to maintain those cultural connections while also being a hundred percent, you know, American too. Yeah. It's interesting. What do you foresee in the future? What do you think of multiculturalism in the future? Is it just, is that our society in America as like the majority of people being multicultured. Yeah. So, you know, a couple of things about this. There's a lot of talk about, you know, mixed cultural families and mixed race families and how that's a big growing thing and all that kind of stuff, which is true. Right. I mean, demographically, there's that. Yes. But really, you know, still people tend to be pretty connected to folks in their own communities and it's not whatever. So I think that there's going to be a little bit of an influence of that kind of thing happening over the next, you know, couple of generations where we're going to see more, more and more mixed culture, mixed race, mixed ethnicity families. And so that's one thing that's going to happen, but I don't think that that's going to be the big agent of change for us. I think what really 
is going to continue to happen, that we're going to have even more of an appreciation of the cultural diversity that there is in this country. Honestly, you know, I think I know we don't like to mix necessarily politics into everything, but I think that the election cycle that just happened, you know, is part of this conversation where opening the doors for more and more people to participate in spaces of power in this country. And that is, you know, going to mean a lot for us being able to really call this country, this United States of America, you know, the diverse Mecca that it really is and should be, because it's, it's not enough to just have all this diversity, but not have, you know, those spaces of power also have that kind of diversity in it. And I think that we're heading there and slowly but surely. And I think that's going to be really important. So to me, I'm going to be looking at what's going to be happening over the next couple of years in terms of how the structures of power shift. And that's going to speak to, that's going to say a lot about where we're going as a country when it comes to understanding and embracing multiculturalism. And by the way, I mean, I I use the political spectrum, the political environment as as an example of that, but it's also looking at who's on the boards of companies. Who's in the C-suite in you know corporate America? Who's sitting around the decision-making table when it comes to green lighting content and making decisions about creative and advertising? Those changes have to happen in order for the sort of what I envision as the true sort of diversity of the multicultural richness of this country to be fully realized. I totally agree with you. Even on a local level, like school boards, library boards, like where's the the fair representation or appropriate representation of all these diverse groups? I think that, you know, really fuel our communities, local communities as well. Yeah. Well, political activism is so important in that level because, and it's a challenge, right? Because we've got, the reality is, is that, you know, especially in markets like mine, right? I live in New Rochelle, New York, which is one of the most diverse small cities in the country. And yet, you know, there is a good amount of diversity on our school board, right? but it's not to the level that it, I think it should be. And I fear that in if that's true here in New Rochelle, then what does it really look like in other markets right. where, you know, people are still not necessarily in the majority, but who, their voices aren't being heard, their kids, you know, cultures aren't being necessarily paid attention to or respected. And that definitely does have to change. Completely agree. It's also yeah. the onus is on everybody, right? Because the reality is, is that those groups that feel underrepresented, it's scary to take that step and be participate in a broader group that you know, might be the majority. And that's a hard shift. I think our generation, next generation feels pretty empowered to make those changes. So that's exciting. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think the younger generations of Americans, regardless of their own cultural backgrounds or whatever, have a broader appreciation for diversity and understand that it enriches them rather than threatens them. Yep. Which is very different than, you know, uh, what you hear from perhaps people in an older generation of Americans. So, I mean, that's not exclusively so or true across the board, but I think that there is a general sense of that being true. And by the way, again, going back to media, media is a very powerful force in that. You know, we were just talking this morning on our staff meeting about, you know, how digital media sort of allows young people to connect with stories and content and cultures from across the world and find commonalities. Again, that idea of these, you know, unique stories being universal. Digital media, the internet has 
really allowed young people to learn about and be connected to cultures and stories that are not necessarily, you know, their own, but give them, you know, that ability to learn how to connect with people, find those universal truths that connect them and find community even outside of those sort of traditional silos that we think about when we think about race and ethnicity and all that kind of stuff. So true. It actually also, if you just look at what's happening in Iran and like the amount of access that people have in the States particularly among young people and understanding what's going on there. Like the narrative is form person to person versus a broad narrative being delivered by, you know, media. I see, I find it fascinating to yeah. see they're all connecting and understanding what's going on. Right. And yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, it's very unfortunate what's happening in, in Iran, but I did find it very interesting how young people here were very quick to make the connection between what was happening, what is happening there and what was happening here with the whole Roe v. Wade thing yes. and how it's a slippery, you know, well, regardless sure. of how you want to slice and dice it, it's a yep. slippery slope. For you sure. know, we start taking rights away from groups of people. This is the kind of thing that can happen. Yeah. And uh, so they're very sophisticated because they of are. all of that. Yeah, you know? I totally agree. Adriana, thank you so much for joining me. This conversation was fascinating. I feel like I could talk to you for hours about it. Yeah. <laughs> At any time, I, you know, this is my favorite topic. So I'd love to do this again sometime and just let me know when. Thank you so much. Teams are in flux, but you still have to get your research in field. Partnership with Paradigm Sample means you get our expert focus on every detail of your project. We have access to over 1 million consumers and many business professionals who are eager to voice their opinions and participate in traditional and non-traditional online studies, whether it comes to sampling, programming and hosting services or consultation. We are agile and quick to meet your needs. Visit ParadigmSample.com today. Thank you for tuning in to Data Guru's podcast. This episode has ended. But your exploration doesn't have to. Head over to www.dataguruspodcast.com and access all the resources and links mentioned in today's show. You'll also find bonus content available to our podcast listeners exclusively. That's www.dataguruspodcast.com. Until next time, be bold, be brave, and be fearless.